Welcome to the Downtown Den podcast with me, Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown and Business. And I'm delighted to be joined by John Irving, who's the Chief Executive of Liverpool John Lennon Airport, in the latest episode in our leading series. Welcome to the Downtown Den, John. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, great to see you. And uh, we're going to have a chat. Obviously, we're going to talk about the, the fantastic uh, 12, 18 months that, that you've had at the airport, but there've been many challenges in the lead up to that period of uh, success. But I wanted to start really talking about, you know, your career uh, and how you started out. So just give us a sort of uh, whistle-stop tour <laughs> of the career so far, John. I will do, yeah. Um, well, I'm, I, when I left the university, I didn't really want to become anything to do with finance. And I ended up joining Procter & Gamble straight out of university on a sort of finance graduate programme. So everything I said I wouldn't do, I ended up doing. So I joined P&G and I was there for, for eight years, working on lots of different finance roles, project roles, management roles. And, and I'll be honest, it was a great place to sort of learn your trade. So I went through SEMA uh, exams with Procter & Gamble like I said, I did lots of different roles. You know, my last role, I managed nine people across Europe. So it was very different. Um, but it was a great company to work for, American. You know, learned a lot of things. Still do a lot of things now that I learned there in terms of people management. Um, but yeah, I became, a, became an accountant by, by default, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and then quickly tried to get rid of that uh, remit. But so yeah, so that was, you know, great ground and great place to start your career. Um, working in Newcastle, I worked in London, but I spent... You know, three years traveling around Europe, you know, like you do, you see hotel rooms and the office and, and people say, have you been there? And I'm like, yeah, what have you seen? Nothing. But yeah, I spent a lot of time sort of traveling around and, and learning, learning some skills along the way. And then randomly in 2007, um, kind of fell into probably what has made my career what it is and uh, got approached to go and work at Newcastle United uh, Mike Ashley had literally bought the club a week before and randomly one of my best mates was, well, still is a corporate lawyer working for Freshfields who did the deal and, and he rang me and I remember he rang me when I was in a nightclub in Newcastle and he said, uh, have you heard about Mike Ashley buying the football club? And I'm a fan. I said, yeah, don't know anything about him. He's like, do you want to meet the chairman? I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> So I turned up to this box on the day. Uh, <clears throat> the security guard didn't even know who the chairman was. And I was like, no, it's, I think it's real. Anyway, long story short, um, I got offered the chance to go to Newcastle United um, as a 29-year-old fan and became the FD like pretty much overnight, which was a significant jump in career title and terms. But it, it was a great time to join because everybody was kind of new from a management point of view and they just wanted someone I'll be honest, who they didn't know, but certainly wasn't someone who was from the old regime. So a bit, bit of fortune, really. But it, but it was a great, great moment, really, in terms of, of, of getting that role and, and then sort of developing that over, over almost nine years, really, in terms of you know, le learning on the job, as you think, but, but also creating a financial structure and a business structure in a football club that was, you know, at the time, various times that, going places and at various times not doing very well. Um, but yeah, so I was finance director for a long time, but I looked after, you know, all of the business really. So I, you know, it's always a bit weird to say everything non-football I looked after in a football club, but that's pretty much what I'd had, you know, ticketing, corporate, you know, engineering, all, all of the things that make a football club tick. So I learned a lot. I learned so much when I was there and, you know, we went through a lot of, you know, 
ups, you know, finishing fifth, getting into Europe, but but also getting relegated, which was, you know, probably where I learned the most really in terms of dealing with change, dealing with problems and, and trying to trying to sort of survive, which you know, coming forward a few years, going through COVID as an airport chief exec probably helped me understand what we need to do and how, how we do it. But I had a great time there, honestly, working in football, you know, as I'm sure most people know, was was brilliant. Everyone had an opinion on it. Some weeks I couldn't go out in a pub because people would be having a go at me. But then other times, you know, you'd be chatting about how well the team's doing. But yeah, learned so much. When I got to 2015, I'd kind of, I think I'd kind of done everything I could do. And there was a lot of change going on in, in the football club at the time. We'd, we'd try to sell it three or four times and been unsuccessful. But I think I'd just kind of grown a bit tired of it. You know, I always use one example. We drew 4-4 with Arsenal, if you remember that game when Diote scored in the last minute. And I, I lost my voice and celebrated. And I think if you looked at me on a camera, you'd be like, what a fan. But I was relieved because it was like, it meant so much for the, for the club and it just drains you a lot. Mm. So I left, uh, I left in 2015 to, to join Newcastle airport. That was my first entry into transport and travel. Um, joined there as chief commercial officer, which again, you know, going from being an FD on paper to chief commercial officer seems a bit weird and different. I knew nothing about aviation, nothing about airlines. You know, I had a bit of commercial sense and obviously financial acumen, but Again, learned pretty much on the job and, and I joined with a, a guy I knew, the chief exec at the time. Um, he basically just said, come and see what you think and, and do what you need to do, which is what I quite liked. You know, there was no remit, there was no structure, just, you know, come, come and see what you can do. So I was there for three years and I'll be honest, I joined the airport hoping to become chief executive of Newcastle Airport. That was kind of my career path. I was very happy in Newcastle, you know, wanted to be around there for, you know, for, for my career. And then the chief exec I joined with left. Um, and Nick, who's the chief exec now, who I got on really well with, got the job, which is great. He was the FD. Um, but to be honest, I think I had in my mind that I wanted to be a chief executive to test myself at, at the top level. And then Liverpool approached me to come and interview um, in 2018, uh, well, back into 2017. Lucky enough, got the job um, and, and moved uh, moved down here and you know five and a half years later after several years of challenges we're, we're in a good place so yeah it's been a been an interesting career my CV looks great on paper I think uh, but I've you know I've probably learned a lot every time I've got a new job which I know is the norm but you know jumping between different industries and different roles I think that's probably what made me who I am to be honest in terms of, of me today so yeah, quite, a, quite an interesting experience, to be honest. A great journey. And as you say, and we'll come on to this a bit later on in the conversation, an awful lot of those learnings that you've taken from the previous jobs must have hugely assisted in terms of the challenge that you faced during the pandemic. But as I say, we'll talk about that a bit later in the conversation. I was quite interested to know about your experience of Procter & Gamble, because as you say, it's an American organisation and... What differences perhaps you know to between, you know, uh, uh, an American approach and what you see in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I joined, you know, Procter & Gamble, was, is a, it's a huge organisation, obviously, internationally, but it did have a, a very good presence in Newcastle for, for hundreds of years. And they'd obviously acquired local businesses at the time. When I joined, we were creating a, what was effectively a service centre, a finance service centre, which looked after 
pretty much all of Europe in Newcastle. So again, a bit fortunate that happened to be in Newcastle. I think what Procter & Gamble do, and they still do now, I've still got friends who work there, and that probably is a symbol of you know the good things that they do. You know, People who've worked there for 20 years um, in, in different roles. They're very people orientated. You know, I think, you know, we all joined and there was probably at the first, and there was probably 30, 35, 21 to 24 year olds, all in their first jobs, all experiencing travel, all experiencing new corporate world. And they looked after you, you know, they trained you, they gave you opportunities to become, you know, qualified accountants, but they did a lot of people oriented management. And, and for me, you know, starting out in a career that I wasn't totally sure that's what I actually wanted to do. You know, they, they, they looked after you really well. And, you know, for me, because it was so big, even in Newcastle, you know, in my time there, I probably did five, six different roles. And every one was about developing skills and also helping you develop through the business. So they were definitely very people-oriented. And, and I think that, you know, I think that's now more of a modern thing, isn't it? You know, I think people have learned, you know, yeah, what's Yeah, but right. we're going back... Few yeah, this years, is aren't we? You know, so, 1999 so that would have been quite innovative at the time, was, I guess. It was, and you know, I was doing things and you know, learning stuff, and they gave you time to learn. It wasn't you weren't, you know, you had a you had a remit, but outside of that remit, you know, you you went off and you went to training courses. You know, some of the things I do not like doing is you know, role players and stuff, but they, they made you do it, <laughs> and and you know, you think oh, I don't want to, I don't want to go to this training, but it, it it kind of enhanced your skills. So it wasn't just about can you do the job and you need to do this to do the job? It was very much about widening your skill set. You know, I know I've got people who've left and become very successful in different places, but I've got friends who are still there, yeah. you know, you know, work there, you know, they'll retire there. They look after you. The pension was brilliant. <laughs> still is for, for those guys. But for me, it was a great place to, to learn how work should be. You know, I think, you know, there's obviously stresses and strains every job you do and, you're only as good as the people around you is my philosophy. And, and, and P&G was all about that. You know, there's, there was people there who probably weren't the best managers individually, but, but they knew what the remit of the corporate was. So the corporation made you do these things. They weren't great people managers. They kind of were career P&G people. But the opportunities that arose were great. Like I said, I've travelled, well, I've travelled most of the world through P&G, but definitely most of European places. Met loads of people learn different skills off different people. And, and I think one of the great things about organizations like P&G is you have people coming from different backgrounds. So one of my managers was a Filipino guy. So he came to Newcastle for three yeah. years, part of his career development. And obviously they have different skill sets, different ways of working. So you, you can cherry pick from different yeah. skills and different people. But yeah, look, for me, an American company like P&G, which was very much ingrained in, in the UK, their people skill set, you know, how they, you know, I had, I had you know, personal development plans in 1999, you know, we're struggling to work out what the right way to do it is now. Yeah. So yeah, those things are, I think were unique at the time, certainly in the, yeah, you know, could have, definitely. You know, could see them now in most companies, but it was different then. Yeah, as you say, I think it's a relatively new thing in the UK and it's still something that people are working the way through. So, you know, we, we tried a few things here yeah. with it within our organization. I know a lot of other businesses have done the same. I was talking to a small business owner only a couple of days ago in Manchester and she was saying how difficult it's been to embed a culture. And I think with small businesses, there's a, an additional challenge in terms of staff turnover and that sort of thing as well. But as you say, when you think back to that 
sort of period, it wouldn't have been a conversation in a boardroom in the UK. I don't, no, think. I don't think. I mean, culture is the right word. You know, we we at the airport we've got a great culture, but it takes hard work, and we're you know, it's twenty odd years ago. Yeah. But the you know the like I said, it, I mean, part of it was the structure of the company, and part of it was probably because everyone was of the same age, the same experience. So you kind of built your own culture. Mm. But yeah, the support they give you to to do that, I think it was it was unique at the time. So then you move at twenty nine to Newcastle United Football Club as FD. Now, you know, we all know in this city of Liverpool how important football is, but you have to go to Newcastle to understand and appreciate how big football is. It touches almost everybody. The first thing you talk to any Geordie about is football. And for those who don't know, I'm sure many people who are listening to this do, but you literally, you're in the city centre, you walk around the corner and there's the stadium. And it's just fucking big thing coming out the ground. And as I say, everybody's either wearing a Newcastle strip or they've got a Newcastle top on it, you know, men, women, kids. So to go into that role at 29, that in itself must have been a fairly big leap for yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was. And like I said, how, how I went in there was a bit fortuitous. And I remember... Obviously, I had a great career at P&G and I'd been promoted and I probably would have got promoted again pretty quickly. So there was a nice, like I said, people are still there. There's a nice career path. You could easily be there. And I remember sitting down with my manager at the time and saying, look, I'm going to resign. She was like, ah, oh, look, we want you to stay. And I said, I'll, I'll stop you there. I've been offered this job. <laughs> and I promised her face like dropped and she was like, what? Because <laughs> it was so out of the blue, if you know what I mean? It was like, what are you talking about? And I said, look, I, I thought about it. I think, well, I don't know if I'm ready. If I don't do it, I'll never get You'd the never, chance again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the conversation stopped and she was like, well, good luck. I can't say it. There was no, I actually moved for the same money. Yeah. I didn't, eat, you know, I was so sort of overwhelmed in it. I had a conversation with this guy who I'd never met, who was, the, who was becoming the chairman. He was like, well, what do you do? And I was like, this. And like, right, what do you earn? And I said, so I told him. He said, all right, do you want, do you want to join? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I was like, I probably should have said, can I have this? That? And I was like, it's probably too late. Yeah. So yeah, it was, a, it was a unique opportunity at the time, to be honest. But, you know, I think when I, when I joined the other, the other side, obviously there was a new ownership group. So for years it had been run by, you know, the shepherds and the halls and, and Mike had, come in and bought it out of the blue. You know, I think it wasn't, you know, not like now where, you know, you see, you know, Man United's takeover going on for, for months for and years. Months, you know what I mean? yeah. this I'm, was I'm very public as well. Very public. Yeah. I mean, I, I can remember when Mike bought it as a fan in PNG. I looked on, I was like, who is this guy? Oh, he owns Sports Direct, which at the time was big, but not, not as well known as it is now. And like, oh, wow, that's amazing. So when I joined, I mean, I joined in the July, so before the season started and, and nobody knew him in the club. There was a lot, as as there always is when a business gets taken over, that there's people worried about their roles. You know, they don't know how it's going to work. They know it's going to be different. And then myself and Chris, who was the chairman, who was a corporate lawyer, we sort of almost parachuted in. And I think you know, I, when I joined people, you know, there was still an FD there. There was still a you know few directors who were part of the old regime who knew they were going, but you know they hadn't gone. So it was a bit a bit awkward, really. Um, <laughs> But but I think people saw me as Mike Ashley's guy, and I'd I'd never even met him at the time, and I'd only met Chris, like I said, 
for a couple of hours in this box where he offered me a job. <laughs> and I walked in and, and again, I think, you know, what, what did they say to me? They were like, look, go in and find out what's going on because they'd bought it almost off the cuff. You know, there's a lot of stories. Mike did no due diligence. He, I mean, of course he did. He's a, you know, sick, but he didn't well, he's do. He's a very successful businessman, yeah. whatever, whatever else you want to say about him, yeah? Yeah, I don't think he knew everything. Well, he didn't know everything, but but he definitely had, had his eyes at least half open. So for the first few months, I kind of just went around the business trying to find out. I was like the spy, and I think people at the time thought that's what I was. But I was actually just trying to understand what was going on. You know, the job title felt, bit heavy at the start because you know, I was PNG. It's like any big business, you had a title, but so did 15 other people exactly the same. So, so yeah, it was, you know, I think the first six months where it was about change, but we're actually, obviously there was the buzz of the excitement of a new owner, you know, a billionaire owner company. Nowadays you need a trillionaire owner, don't you, to get the same buzz, but it was, it was an exciting time. Like I said, everybody in Newcastle, or well, certainly in the surrounding areas. If you don't like Newcastle, you don't like football. <laughs> yeah. That's it. It's yeah. like so everyone, you know, everyone was interested in it. Um, you know, my first, you know, my first game I went to was Celtic pre-season, and I was sat next to Sir Bobby Robson, you know, and he was, you know, old and in a wheelchair at the time. But I'm like, what is? Yeah. And I took me best mate, yeah. and he's like, what is? How has this happened? Like, yeah. but yeah, it was a uh, you know, great opportunity, and you know, I would. You know, I say, this is how I was say, I said, I was fortunate how I got in there, but I was there for eight and a half years. So you kind of like, you, must you know, have must right. have done something all right. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of, part of why I think we were, or part of why I was successful, I was, you know, I had, Chris was the chairman at the time and he left after a year and another guy called Derek Lambias came in who I worked and I'm still close to now. He was based out of London. He was a friend of Mike, but, a, you know, a, a a business manager, if you like, but he, he left us to do our own thing on a day-to-day basis. So I had to learn quickly and you quickly become an expert in lots of things. Yeah. Um, and again, look, we kept a lot of good people around who had the experience and the skills and, you know, we did build, I'll be honest, we did build a very successful business. We didn't get the football right a lot, but... That's out of your hands, though, isn't it? It, it is, and, you know, I... Do, do you think, uh, I mean, it's a couple of things I'm interested in exploring as far as that particular role is concerned. I, I just wondered how you distinguished as the job and a fan, because, you know, I know a lot of people, obviously it's Everton who are Evertonians as well. I know people who work for Everton who aren't, yeah. um, but it's sort of even the Reds who work for Everton are, are sort of getting there now, you know, it gets into your blood, I suppose, doesn't it? But was that difficult at times? You mentioned that sometimes you go to the pub and people are being your ear. But I don't necessarily mean that because, you know, that's just one of those things. Yeah. But just in terms of being able to take the emotion out of some of the decisions you must have had to make. I think it was it was certainly difficult at the start because, because it was kind of new when there was a buzz, you know, the first season we had there, I wouldn't say we were overly successful, but everything was... You know, we were buying players and, you know, it was all fun and everybody was enjoying and it. And where did you finish that season? I can't remember, mid-table, I think. Yeah, probably. but it was Premier League. Was Premier League, yeah. yeah, it was Premier League and we were yeah. mid-table. Probably didn't do as well as we should have done. But yeah, it, it, it was difficult. But to be fair, the first year was all about getting your feet under the table and understanding yeah. it. So you could be more like a fan. I mean, I used to go to away games, you know, and you would in the director's suites and, you know, sitting with... All the prawn sandwiches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you're like, you sat next to people like David Gill at meetings, and you're like, I know him off the telly. So it was, 
I think I probably struggled for the first year to kind of have the confidence of... Bit of imposter syndrome? Probably, yeah, a little bit of that, I'll be honest, Frank, in terms of, you know, I was young. You know, I sat in a Premier League shareholders meeting, which is the chief execs, normally the owners, and I'm sat there representing Newcastle, and I'm like, they must wonder, I'm either a genius or <laughs> why is this guy here? Like, so I pretended I was the genius. I <laughs> but it was, uh, but yeah, it, it, it was hard. I mean, I think there's times... You know, when we were successful, you could be more of a fan. But I'll be honest, probably after the second year, you know, we got relegated in the end of the second and well, third season, and we should never have been relegated. You know, we had our strike force was Viduka, Owen, Oberfemi Martins, we had Damien Duff, Colaccini. It was ridiculous. Must have been one of the best teams to ever go down. Yeah, when we had the highest wage bill ever to go down. You know, our wage bill was something like the fifth in the country, which now, no, it does make a difference, yeah. but it doesn't prevent you obviously going down. Who was the manager then? Well, well the problem was we had three. Okay. So Keegan was the manager at the start, then he left, and we had Joe Kinnear came in, then he got ill, and then we had Chris Hutton, and then we had Alan Shearer. So we had four. four. And, of course, and that was remember, it was at Villa, wasn't it? Yeah, when you, we, we, you we, went down. we lost yeah. to Villa on goal, yeah. and so I was there. And, and I'll be honest, at that point, it wasn't a fan. So that's a great example. We got yeah. relegated. You know, your emotions, you're feeling it as a fan as well. But you know, you know, I remember driving back from Villa Park that afternoon or that night. And I was like, oh shit, this is 50 million quid. Is that the impact? Yeah. I mean, is that, you know, because again, we often hear, don't we, as fans, we try and not pay too, I think we pay too much attention actually now to the finance. You know, football fans are all experts in football finance now. It pisses me off. But as the FD... Was that like, yeah, was, wow, this is really, really going to be I challenging? Mean, and it's even bigger now because, yeah. you know, when I was there, you know, the, the revenue of the football club was about 100 million. Now you get 120 just from TV. Yeah. So, but it was still, you know, TV was. It's all relative there. It yeah. is all relative. I mean, Newcastle, you know, a bit like, you know, Everton, the, the, the ticket revenue at the time was probably a third of our revenue. So we were lucky in a way because you yeah. kind of hoped that would keep continuing. But the TV was. 50. So you know that went from, you know, let's say we got 80 million quid that year from TV. The next year we got 10. And most of that was from the Premier League. So you're like instantly dead. And what's the challenge there, John, in terms of players and that wage bill? Because Huge. you're trying to get people out of the door, but then you've got clubs who probably won't be as generous in terms of salary, yeah? Yeah. And, you know, I think, again, while that wasn't really my remit, the remit that summer was how do we secure the business? To be fair to Mike, he put in a lot of his own money as a kind of, you know, he got a lot of stick for this. They called it, he called it a loan. It was an interest-free loan. It was equity, really. He never got it back until he sold it. And that gave us the buffer. But, you know, we had to refinance the business in effect. You know, we had a, like all businesses, we had banking facilities with banks and overdrafts, which all of a sudden were un- able um but yeah the, the player side of it was difficult we had, we had an unbelievable squad when we went down and some were out of contract some we managed to shift some we had to pay to move and some stayed you know when we were in the championship we had i think our back four was jose enrique Colaccini. <laughs> like you're like what and then we had uh you know some very good i mean we absolutely smashed the championship yeah. but but we should have done our wage bill was i think 
probably had 40, 50 million quid more than anybody else's. So, <laughs> yeah. so that does make a difference. <laughs> yeah. But we lost a lot of money that year and, and, and Mike popped it up. But I remember driving home that and you're like, oh my God. Because it wasn't just the player side of it. And, you know, the players, you know, they, I think they did feel it, but some of them knew, well, I'll be gone in four weeks, whatever. And they'll professionally, they'll obviously be upset. But we had to make redundancies. We had no choice. You know, we lost senior people, you know. And that was my responsibility. You know, you can never, and this is kind of the same in COVID, you have to make some big decisions. I remember driving home thinking, well, tomorrow's going to be horrendous. You know, not just because I'm a fan and I'm upset in the championship, get over it. But we had to, you know, we had to restructure the business. And I remember going to meetings, you know, I can't remember which hotel, we met Mike in a hotel once. And I took the cash flow and he was like, what? Because <laughs> it was just ridiculous. And it, it hurt. And, you know, you go up and down. If you go up and down the leagues, you kind of build yourself up. Whereas we would drop from what should have been fifth or sixth in the Premier League to championship. So it was, a, it was a, you know, for for six, eight weeks, it was horrible because we didn't, re, you know, we had to make a plan up. People say, did you not plan for relegation? You're like, well, we kind of knew we could get relegated, but until it happens, what do you do? Because it's not like a business where you could go, well, actually, let's get ahead of the game and get rid of these players. No. You're trying to stay up. We'd, yeah. If we'd scored, we would have stayed up. You know, so it was it was a really challenging time. I think, again, like we said before, we'll talk about later, that, that, I think I probably in COVID used that memory and what we did and what we had to do to help us through COVID. Yeah, gosh, I can imagine that must have been an horrendous time, as you say, both as a fan and then in terms of the financial implications it had on the club itself. But you've mentioned Mike Ashley a couple of times and I've never met the guy, um, but obviously he's not got the best reputation in terms of Newcastle United football fans. I don't know a football owner who has them. And I often wonder why the fuck people buy football clubs, to be honest with you, because as I say, the owners, they only ever get the stick, don't they? The managers and players get all applauded if the club's doing well. If they're doing badly, it's sometimes the manager gets stick, of course, but often it's like Everton at the moment, yeah? It's the ownership who are getting a lot of pain in the neck. But I just wondered what he was like to work for. I mean, mean, he, he... You know, we we spent time together. He wasn't on the ground all the time, but you know, we'd obviously go and have meetings in in Sports Direct and Shirebrook, and he would do a full day of Sports Direct stuff, and then he would would talk about football late into the night and what we're going to do. For, for me, from a personal point of view, he was a, he was a brilliant owner. Um, I mean, the, the, it's never a popular thing to say because, like you said, fans want to have someone to have a go with, and I think you know Mike understood that, and, and we understood it, and some of the things we made decisions on bad, bad decisions. But what he did was he trusted the people around him. And that, you know, that for me was great. That's how I like to work with my team. It's like, you've got to have some trust in people. Mm. He never confessed to be an expert in football or buying players or doing this. He had loads of great ideas on the business side. And when it's good, it's great. When it's bad, you instantly, you know, under significant pressure. You know, I think for me, I always say a couple of things. If Mike hadn't bought that football club at that time, who knows where it would have been. And no one will ever say that. And I used to say that when I was there. It's not a new thing. You know, that, that club was financially difficult to purchase. So thankfully, someone like Mike who bought it in with little or no knowledge bought it because no one else would have done, I don't think. He pumped his own money into it, significant money. We uncovered things that 
weren't great that we had to cover. And we were still playing for Albert Luque and he'd left three years ago. So you, these things you don't see until you get under underneath it. But he, 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 in my view, helped that club be where it is today. You know, I think there's things he would admit to and he would say that we made some decisions that we thought were f- for the good of the club that didn't work out, but it, it wasn't ever done with the, the wrong intention. Nobody does that deliberately, do they? No, and I, like, I remember times, you know, I was lucky, at, you know, I was the FD and you know, we had a year where we finished fifth. We should have probably finished fourth and that would have possibly changed the dynamic. And I remember going to meetings and people from other football clubs like, how have you done that? Because we bought, you know, we sold one of the most difficult decisions or things we got. We sold Kevin Nolan to West Ham. He'd been brilliant for us, got us yeah. promoted, and you know he'd done done well for us. He was a club captain, he's good, a good yeah, guy. Yeah, skipper, wasn't he? Yeah, he's yeah. a good guy. Yeah, and we sold him, and we bought Yuan Kabai. And people were like, why have you done that? I mean, Yuan Kabai were paid four million euros for. He was unbelievable. Yeah. We sold him for twenty. Yeah. But people at that point that year was like, oh my god, you bought. We had Kabai. You know, we bought Cisse. Remember when he started? He was scoring from forty yards every week. Denver Bar, Ben Arthur, yeah. Gutierrez. We had an unbelievable. Who was the manager? Pardew at the end. Um, and we, we we did really well. And we finished higher than we ever thought we would and probably lower than we wanted to. But the next year, so we were the talk of the Premier League because you're like, we had a logic. We were buying foreign players for less money. We had Sissoko, you know, we had all those players that came in and made a big difference. And then the next year, we finished 17th and we had to buy players to stay up. And, and it just turned like that. And so we had all the upside of oh, you know, doing a great job, great model. Wish we were like you. You know, like people say, I wish we were like Southampton, like you don't now. Wish we were like, you know, it, it's just what's popular at the time, isn't it? And, and it's changed a lot now. But What do you think, and I know this is difficult because as you said, you're dealing with the non-football side of the game, but what, what makes football so unpredictable? I suppose it's one of the reasons we love the game, but how do you go from, and it's not just Newcastle. You've mentioned Southampton. I remember Bournemouth had an incredible season one year and then got relegated the next. I remember Norwich doing something similar, Ipswich Town, another one. You know, there's, those stories are so often yeah, common, I suppose, in football. Why, why does that happen, John? You know, because you're in there. Yeah. Let's say you're not on the football side. But was the things happening that you were, even as the FD, aware of thinking actually there's something not quite right here I think sometimes it can be the upside can be because you get a good group of players who come together and all of a sudden it just gels very quickly um, but that can also disappear because you know the guys who are out there doing their jobs on the pitch every Saturday you know they, they're humans as well so they have different things going on I mean when we were good I'll be honest there was a not necessarily the most popular thing to say we had a manager who got everybody together across the whole club. So the next year, I don't think anything really changed. And we went from fifth. We had, like everything in football, you don't invest and keep up, you start to go backwards. And that, I think, is true. So the year we finished fifth, I think we bought one player. We had a good squad, but we bought one player and we had lots of games on a Thursday night. So you couldn't, we didn't have a squad to rotate. And I think that's the same now, I think. You can have a great, Newcastle had a great year last year, finished fourth. But we probably used the same 15 players with another set of games in the Champions League this year. We can't do that, you know, no matter what you think, it's impossible. So I think some of it is you have to keep investing. But you, you know, when we were there, 
we relied on football people to make those decisions. You know, I don't remember Mike ever saying no to anything, which people won't believe, but it's true. And he was like, yeah, okay, go and get them. Yeah, get the right price. But so we bought one player. So we, what changed? I don't think we invested enough. You know, it's a bit like Liverpool, isn't it? They had a yeah. great season. Yeah. And then last, the, you, everybody could see it. You needed yeah. Yeah. three or four new players and it didn't happen. Didn't so it, it is a, sadly, even more now, it's a game of, investing every time what good or bad you have to keep going and and I think we probably didn't and there was a point where we stopped because it, it just wasn't worth it um but and then we got relegated yeah. so you know in different periods then we got relegated again after I left the year after I went they got relegated again and all I could think was the year when I left I think we finished 14th or something like that and we didn't invest or we didn't invest in the right way mm. And they got relegated, so it can it can catch you up yeah. quite quickly. You know, you can't keep selling your best players and not bringing in new ones. Yeah. And that year we finished fifth. We sold our best players, but brought in better ones. So you know, it, yeah. but it's a game of you have to rely on the experts. You know, I was there to look after the finances and the business, and we had great people running hospitality and ticketing and great ideas, facilities. You know, the ground staff were great. But if the people picking the players get it wrong, no matter what you do, and well, that doesn't make it's any difference. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, it. I, again, you know, I feel for for people who work within football clubs. Not to, we deal with a, a lot of uh, clubs, fortunately, and I always feel for them because you know that again they're invisible for ninety nine percent of the time. But as, as soon as the club starts to struggle and all of a sudden it's like, who's the FD? Who's the marketing <laughs> manager? Who's the, and you're like, really? Anyway, listen, before we um, we get on to your career in aviation, which we'll talk about after a short break, I do want you to just repeat a story that I've heard a number of times. I love it. Um, and it's the Sam Allardyce story. <laughs> oh, you always ask me that one. I've, I've got other ones, but I forget them. Yeah, so I look, again, this was... This was the first year I was at the football club and, you know, I, we, you know, Sam had come in in the summer before Mike had bought it. You know, we'd bought some, some, I would say, good players in there, but we didn't, I, th- I think, to be fair to Sam, if, if, some, if the ownership hadn't changed, he might have stayed longer, but, you know, Mike was excited and everyone was excited and, and we were, I think we were probably mid-table, whatever, anyway. The story goes like this, you know, what one one afternoon, um, kind of get wind of these things coming. You know, we we knew Sam was coming up to see the chairman and we knew what, what was gonna happen and he came in and mine and, and the guy called Lee's office to to chat to us on, on the way to see the chairman. Um and as he was there, Sky Sports News ticker tape, the yellow breaking news banner, which is the same now, came up Sam Allardyce <laughs> from Newcastle United. <laughs> And he hadn't actually gone into the ring yet. And so, so I think he knew. I think he, obviously, he obviously knew before he came in. But so yeah, I watched. Uh, I watched that news break with him at the time, which was which is an odd situation. But, but yeah, look, I mean, I'll be honest with with Sam. And I didn't spend a lot of time with him, but when he was there, and that he gets, you know, I don't know if he's been at Everton, he's, but he was the only manager who got all of the management team. And when I mean management, I don't mean like coaching stuff I mean you know me the head of marketing corporate in a room together to talk about being a team so he was ahead of his time then you know we had we had, we had a, lot, a lot of money spent on you know the chambers which are now all the rage so he was ahead of his time and I'll be honest 
I think he probably was unlucky because the football we played wasn't the football Newcastle fans wanted mm. and neither did the owner. And we ended up with Kevin Keegan a few weeks later. But yeah, it was a, it's one of those, it's funny, <laughs> some of the stories that happened in football, you forget them until, you know, discipline and managers and players is the same as in a employee point of view, but it's a player or you know, like, <laughs> yeah. did you really do that? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> forget, forget these things. But yeah, no, it was a, uh, there's loads of good st- they're all they're, they're stories now aren't they but yeah. at the, the time it was like it was surreal that point were you a fan or were you a FD yeah. I think I was probably both at that point thinking oh, I need to keep my head down here but yeah. unfortunately knocked on the door and said how are you doing you're like <laughs> yeah funny. and then there was a big check for you to write that one <laughs> oh, yeah yeah he did that, he did that right. I, think, I think his house is uh, still called Casas and James but yeah, yeah. but yeah look he, it's football isn't it it's oh, like it's, managers yeah, come and go absolutely. unfortunately and yeah. uh yeah. You know, as you said, I think, look, look at Everton, right? They have spent a load of money in the last seven years, but they didn't buy the right players. No, that's not the owners. Is it the owners' fault? I don't, don't know. It's the processes you put in place. Yeah, it depends, doesn't it? Because I think that, you know, there are certain um, owners who you can tell do get involved in the football side of things. And I always think that's dangerous. 100%. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear you say, well, Mike Ashley never did. And for me, you know, if the owner is making available the resource that he has available, then that's the only thing that you can ask and, and doesn't interfere with the football side. You can get managerial appointments wrong. Managers do buy the wrong players. But I think if you end up in a situation, and I suspect this is one of the gripes Evertonians have, to be honest, where the owner is actually getting involved yeah. in those negotiations and, and identifying players, then that's never it a good is a sign, recipe is it? for disaster. Like yeah. you got, you have to have a plan, and you can get the plan wrong, and you can suffer. But if you've got a plan, you can't. You know, like I said, it, I didn't get involved other than what, what's the cash flow look like. You know, it was left for football people. Then if they get it wrong, you know, I think nowadays there's more into it, and there's you know, people are looking at players, the families, how they act. Let's all get it wrong, and it's a big investment. So, oh, so listen, we've uh, we've gone through the first part of your career journey, and then obviously um, all of the drama surrounding Newcastle United during that period of time. You know the ups, the downs. Mike Ashley as the owner becoming sort of public enemy number one at times in the city. Um, but then you thought, well, I'm going to have a bit of a quieter life and I'm moving into aviation. So after the break, we're going to talk about your time at Newcastle Airport, of course, but then right up to date and um, the journey, forgive the pun, that you've had at Liverpool John Lennon. So stay with us. We'll be back in a mo. Hi, my name's Frank McKenna. I'm the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And if you're not a member of DIB yet, why not? You are going to miss out on a sensational September of events. We've got events right across the country and we'll be speaking to some really influential politicians, including the Shadow Business Secretary, Johnny Reynolds, the Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting, and the Shadow Justice Minister, Steve Reed. We've also got the property entrepreneur Chris Oglesby doing an event for us down in Birmingham. And we've got a whole range of other speakers, chief executives of local authorities, other business leaders, other politicians coming in to share their thoughts and opinions with the Downtown Network. If you go to our events section on our website, all the W's downtowninbusiness.com, then you will see 
what a fantastic range of events we have coming up in September. And if that's not enough to tempt you into a membership, then wait to see what we've got coming in the remainder of the autumn. We've got awards events happening in Manchester, Birmingham and Liverpool. We've got the two leaders from Liverpool and the Liverpool City region, Liam Robinson and Steve Rotherham joining us for a very special breakfast forum. We've got the Education Minister, Gillian Keegan, doing us an event at the Conservative Party conference. We've got Andy Street, the regional mayor from the West Midlands in a breakfast event with us too. So a whole range of great people, great events, great networking. Join downtown in business today. And as I say, visit our website and see some of the fantastic events that we've got for your pleasure happening in autumn 2023. Welcome back to the Downtown Dem podcast. And I'm talking today to John Irving, who's the chief executive of Liverpool John Lennon Airport. Before the break, we were talking about his experiences at Procter & Gamble, uh, then at Newcastle United Football Club. And then I think you've explained, John, you know, it was very intense periods of time as a fan and working within the organisation. And I suppose that intensity of one point has come to the point where you've thought, actually, I need to, a little bit of stress relief here. How did the opportunity about the uh, for, for Newcastle Airport come about for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd got to a point probably a year, probably a year before I left at the football clubs, and I thought, well, one, it was pressure. You know, I think there was a lot of things going on at the club. It was like, well, what else can I do? What else? You know, it, it was the best job you can get in Newcastle for me as an as an accountant. There isn't a better one, but from a career point of view and trying something different, you know, I needed, I needed a new challenge, but I also needed something that was a bit, you know, different in terms of where the pressures came. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't really see the next step for me at the football club and I could have stayed there. For, well, I probably would have gone by now because the takeover had happened, but. Oh, nice check. Oh, yeah, no, I do think, <laughs> I do think about that sometimes. <laughs> but, it, but it was the right time for, for me personally to try something different um the, the airport i mean I, I think i quite like work well i do like working in industries that are interesting to people yeah. and people say well football and aviation are totally different yeah they are but they're very customer focused everyone mm-hmm. has an opinion about football good and bad and everyone has something to say about travel don't they either going on holiday or yeah. can you get this flight or why is car parking 80 quid or why do you get a ticket when you park here so good and bad, you get the feedback, don't you? And I, and I quite like that. You know, I've always said I don't think I could work in a business where people weren't interested in it, like general public people. You know, I'm just sat there talking about you know, going to Antalya and stuff. It's interesting. So the, the airport was kind of in Newcastle from a brand point of view and from a custom point of view, probably the only other option other than going to another football club or a cricket club or something like that. So... I knew the chief exec at the time through football, really. He was, uh, you know, he'd been at the airport for 20 years and the chief exec for seven or eight, and he was a good guy. I knew him well. There was an opportunity to apply for the FD job at the airport. Um, the guy was leaving, so Davey said, just apply. You're not a shoot when it has to be properly done, but apply and we'll, you'll have a good chance because I'll back you. So I applied and I didn't get it. <laughs> um, and, and a guy called Nick did. He's the chief of the now and he's a, he's a good guy. And actually, for what they needed, he was the right choice. As I said, I was the FDA at Newcastle, but I didn't, I'll be honest, finance was my title, but I did a lot of other things. So being a finance director wasn't really what I wanted. Yes. 
Um, but fortunately, they saw enough of me to offer me a job that they kind of created, chief commercial officer. So looking after the airlines and the retail and car parking, none of which I had a whole load of experience about. But, you know, Davey backed me at the time to, to go in there. All fitted with that interest of customer service. Oh, yeah. And all, all interesting in terms of what I wanted to do. Like I said, I was an FD, but, you know, I didn't really want to be a finance director. Um, I would have done with the idea of becoming the chief exec at some point, but you know this job was was perfect, and I you know got to work with with Nick, who got the FD job or the CFO job, and and the guys who'd been there a long time. So it was it was the right time, but also the right business, I think, for me. You know, as I said, you know, I, I am a Geordie, and I, I kind of probably saw my career up there for most of for most of my time. You know, I was at P and G, travelled around, but was in Newcastle, Newcastle United, then the airport. So I joined and I, le- I learned a lot. And, you know, I was only there just just under three years, but it was a brand new industry. You know, as I said, you know, Davey left probably nine months into me being there. But, but both him and Nick, who became the chief exec, you know, trusted me to you know, learn how to do the job and actually try and put some of my stamp on it. We had experts in the fields. You know, it's not like I was, you know, coming in and, trying to build something that was brand new. We had people there who were great and, you know, we had a couple of directors who left and we had, but we had, we were fortunate. We had a couple of great guys who are still there now and have been promoted to director who ran both sides of that business. So I had a, had a great team when I joined and that, you know, they were young, um, but they had the ambition and the, the ability to do it. So, you know, again, fortunate to have a, a good team, inherit a good team, but yeah, it was, you know, it was a, it was a good opportunity. Learned a lot. Learned a lot. You know. What's the scale of the airport, John? Well, Newcastle Airport at the time was slightly bigger than Liverpool, so it was you know it was always about five million. But because it's because Newcastle's not next to another big city as an airport, it had lots of different things to what we have at Liverpool. So you know, it was similar size, but you know there was six flights a day to Heathrow, KLM in Amsterdam. We had an Emirates daily flight, which as a city in a region probably don't make sense, but as a, you know, there is nowhere else for passengers in the Northeast to go other than Manchester or Edinburgh. So it's far enough away. So because of how it sits on a map, we had a lot of different things to, to what we have at, at Liverpool, you know, in, in good and bad sense. But yeah, it was, you know, it's a very similar size to Liverpool. It's a, you know, it's a regional airport serving, you know, the the, the Northeast. Yeah. It just in terms of the location of the city, because it's something obviously we, um, we, Launched in Newcastle um, towards the end of last year, I think it was actually, and um, you know we found it difficult to place it to get to, and you know if you look at the map, it's not that far away, but bloody hell, you know, and and you know just in terms of because I know you're interested in the, the wider UK economy as well, the infrastructure connection. For that part of the world is awful, isn't it? It is. Look, I mean, I'm I'm a Geordie, so you kind of when you when you're in the business world, you kind of think about it, but not to the to the degree you probably should. And I think, yeah, it it feels a bit isolated when you've moved down here. It does feel different, you know. I think it, it isn't that far away. I mean, I, I very rarely go back home now, not because I don't want to. It's just it's three hours. <laughs> you know, like, how is it? And then to get the train is almost impossible. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the connections from the airport, from Newcastle Airport to the world are good, but they need to be good because you can't be anything other than good. You know, even going to Scotland, which is, you know, Edinburgh's 100 mile away, it takes you 
Yeah. It's a single lane motorway. It's madness. So we, I mean, the Newcastle airport catchment area, we used to stretch down into Teesside and across into Cumbria. You know, the Lake District's what? The other side of the country. But it, it's impossible to get to. But we were their local airport, really. You know, you like you have to drive for 55, 60 minutes to get there. So it is. it, it does feel a bit isolated up there. And it doesn't really, to me, at least the people I, I speak to and, and, and we'll deal with and... and I think it's a city going places, by the way, particularly with the investments in the club. But they don't seem to me to have really bought into the Northern Powerhouse concept because I think they see that as Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, yeah. not really taking the North East. And I think they've got a point to be yeah. fair, John. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I mean, when I moved down here, one of the first things I kind of saw that, I mean, Liverpool and Newcastle are similar in size and style aren't they you know it's yeah. friendly and there's a lot going on it's good yeah. nightlife all that stuff but the northwest be it liverpool or manchester or both there's so much more joined up so you know this is a good example in in newcastle airport obviously it was owned by it is owned by the seven local authorities who used to argue about what was right and wrong and when we were talking about visitor economy which you know when you've got the coastline you've got you know things up there you've now got the football club doing what it's doing there was no joined up approach. As, as an airport, we decided to almost, well, we did our own thing. So we were like, well, we need a website for the Northeast. Well, let's let the airport lead it. You're like, what? And then when I came down here, you're like, oh, you've got Visitor Economy Board, Network, Marketing Liverpool. You're like, oh, right, this is actually how we do it. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. like people used to say, what's, it, what's the difference? And I'm like, Liverpool for me is 10 years ahead of Newcastle. And why we might think in Liverpool we're 10 years behind Manchester. And what? Newcastle. And the northeast are oh, they didn't buy it, they haven't bought into that. I don't know if it's a protection thing or just not that mindset. And it might change as you know politics change. And they're getting a new combined authority now, aren't I they? Think so that more will strategic help. Yeah, approach, hopefully. Th- th- that will help. And you know, the, the support from the local authorities for the airport on its own was good. But there wasn't it was almost a fight between them, like, oh well, you know, you can't have Newcastle as the attack brand. But, we can't have South Shields because no one's heard of it. Whereas here, it's you, know, you still yeah. have the boroughs asking why, but but everybody knows Liverpool's the the yeah. name that sells. We we do it in the airport, and and that certainly when I left Newcastle was was the big challenge and the big difference. It it wasn't a joined up approach. It you know the airport was you know an outbound airport rather than a, a mix like we have when we're lucky in Liverpool, yeah. but. And they have, is it Newcastle Airport or is it, New, it's not Newcastle Gateshead, is it? No, it's it? Newcastle International Airport, yeah. but that is one of, you know. But Gateshead always gets tagged onto yeah, stuff, so, doesn't you know, it? that's another thing. I, I mean, it, I was a member of Newcastle Gateshead Initiative, which is, you know, the the board for, you know, the two of Newcastle why is, Gateshead. Why is Gateshead so important? Uh, forgive my ignorance. I'll here. be honest, I think this comes down to you can't, you, nobody brave enough to say Newcastle is the brand. Everybody else gets the share. Yeah. You know, Northumberland is beautiful. Mm. But if it was New, what do you call the airport? Like Northeast Airport. I mean, people in yeah. America would be like, Northeast of what? Yeah. But I think that is the point, you know, mm. Newcastle, Gateshead, you know, they're separated by, you know, a bridge. Yeah. But people, you know, if they build the arena on that side of the river, people will still stay in Newcastle. So it is Newcastle, <laughs> but that's the bit. They haven't, I still don't think now, and I've been a long time away, really. They don't get that bit of, it's all right to just say Newcastle. 
because if you bring in people in, your job then is to make sure they go to Bambra or go to South Shields or go to Durham. Those are great places, but I think that could, you'll know better than most. I think that's through political leadership that and just being like, this is what we're doing to get on with it. And it's always been, you know, we didn't couldn't even get a combined authority. So Liverpool then, how did that come about, John? Yeah, like I said, I mean, I, you know, my ambition was to be chief executive of Newcastle Airport. I'd done hide behind that. And, you know, part of the reason I went there was to do that. And it, it didn't happen for, for lots of reasons. I still had a great time and still have a great relationship with the guys there. But I got approached, you know, as you kind of do, randomly by a recruitment agency. I wasn't looking, to be honest. I mean, I was probably getting to a point where I'm like, I'll have to make a decision at some point. But as I said, I was fairly northeast based. And at the time, you know, this job came up, came down to interview for it. You know, I felt like I think I had the skill set to do it. Um, I went through a couple of interviews and, and got offered it. And Career-wise, that's what I wanted to do. I'd, I'd be honest, I'd only been to Liverpool a couple of times in my life. So I didn't know the city, didn't really know the area, and I moved down. And you know, the rest is history, really. It was a, it was a, a career move, but you know, it was a, an airport where, you know, when I come from Newcastle Airport after a couple of years, you're like, well, why don't Liverpool do that? And why haven't you got this? And you know, so you kind of look at what do you not do rather than, well, what is it about and what's good? Because, you, you know, when you're doing research for interviews you'd kind of like, well what am I going to do what am I going to do differently to make you want to hire me so it was like well you don't have Jetsu or you don't have all of this connection into you know the world which you know five years later when it do now have but but that was kind of the mindset of well there's a lot of scope to do that I mean my, I still think Liverpool has the best opportunity I'm not just saying that because I'm sat in the chair you know as a city in a region we're massive having Manchester on the doorstep is not the end of the world because the catchment area is huge and we've now started to finally break the back of airlines wanting to do both and well, that's great so I, I, at the time I was like well great career wise I want to be a chief exec and I want not just the title I just want the responsibility to test myself in an airport where I thought there was opportunity you know my my style I think I've learned over the years is and there has to be something to develop there I don't think I would be great at just sitting there and making it a bit more glossy you know, and it's nice to think like that but so yeah it was a great opportunity you know five well march 2018 moved down here so and if i think back to that time john the airport had gone through a difficult period um and i don't know the ins and outs of that because obviously you know we dealt with the airport from from time to time um but there being almost a disconnect um develop uh, between the business community, the politicians, and the airport, which is a bit strange. And um, you came in, and I don't can't remember how we met, but I remember someone saying to me, "Oh, new chief exec, good guy." And you know what's impressed me about you is the way in which, and you say you've not been to Liverpool uh, prior to to getting the job, but you're very much part of the furniture now. And it was your enthusiasm to actually get out, network, meet the right people, find out what was happening in the place. Um, was that part of the remit or was that something that you thought yourself, I need to to get under the skin of, uh, of this place if yeah. I want to make this a success? It's a, it's a, I think it, it wasn't a direction. So no one said you must do that. I mean, I think naturally the airport, you know, we're a facilitator to, to the city. 
and to the businesses and to the people that, you know, we, we're a business and we have to make money, but why do we exist? We exist to connect people in places. That's what an airport is. So not being connected would feel odd. So I don't know one, you know, my, the chairman didn't say, you must go and meet these people. He did say, look, these are the right people to talk to. So I think part of it is I do actually generally believe you have to be connected. Otherwise, one, commercially, why would people feel any value? You know, we're lucky we've got a lot of loyal customers. Liverpool are loyal to Liverpool, which is brilliant. But you can't just expect that. So you know, it would be my natural inclination to to do that and connect with the businesses and to see what's going on, see... You know, when we go and talk to airlines, we talk about the airport, talk about how good the service is. But I'll be honest, they're only really interested about what the demand is. So if you don't know that and you can't talk with any confidence, you're not in the game. You know, you're, you're bidding against multiple cities. It's not, you know, it's not an easy job. So I think you have to do it. The, the, the other side of it is obviously I was, you know, in Newcastle because of the roles I was in, because of you know the people's interest in football and the air, I was very well connected yeah. and I kind of came down here and thought, I don't know any, I don't know anybody. So, you know, I'm, I remember meeting you and you've introduced me to loads of great people and helped me build those relationships. I think they need to be stronger than they are even now. I mean, the, the last few years of COVID, you kind of had to just decamp and do your own thing. And that wasn't because we didn't want to engage. It's just, it's just tough time. So, you know, I think we've done well to engage, but we need to do more. Um, certainly the where the airport's going to and the opportunities we've got coming, we need that connection to be even stronger. But yeah, I think partly, you know, it's the right thing to do for the business, should always happen, should never be disconnected. But also I needed to build some kind of network here so that when we do talk to airlines and business partners and, you know, feel what's going on, can open the door and pick up a phone and, and have a chat. So yeah, look, I, something you know, I don't do enough of. You know, the last couple of years, you kind of go back in your shell a bit because you're just protecting and surviving. Whereas now we need to get back out again. So yes. So you're in the job for probably I was eighteen months, I guess, and then the pandemic hit. And you know, listen, every business um, had challenges, difficulties, but travel aviation it must have just been a nightmare yeah i think you know it was, so i joined march 2018 and in february 20 you know you're watching these reports about china shutting down and you know people in, on italian balconies and i'll be honest for the first few weeks like probably most people say well oh, that looks horrendous doesn't it and i and i say this and i, and I don't like telling people this but someone important rang me from a shareholder group and said what's the impact and i was like we don't fly to china don't, don't worry about it roll forward four weeks later and you're literally like oh my god so it, we were you know effectively shut down i i say we were shut down for at least 18 months we were people were traveling but not we were we were closed so you know we you know you kind of look back and, and it feels like a long time ago now doesn't it which yeah. is great you know things have progressed a lot but you know the things we had to do you know I remember sitting you know with my HR director and my ops director and going well how long do you reckon this could last like no idea six weeks well initially everyone yeah, yeah. said six weeks didn't they so we were like right what's the most important thing right we've got to protect skills and experience and jobs for six weeks yeah. but we've also got 
issues because we're not making any money. We were shut. We were sh- shut at that point. So we started talking about well, short term working, half pay. You know, I know it's going to be horrible, but at least it's only for a few weeks. And we were literally about to get that, you know, through a discussion with the unions. And then furlough came out. We're like, well, what's furlough? And I don't even know what that means. So you were inst- constantly, like every business was, like, well, I'm going to do this. Oh, no, no, I can't. After the- so it was, you know, for six to eight weeks, you were kind of just in a spin. And the, the only thing that we knew was there was no flying. So you knew no one was coming through the door. Didn't know how long for. But I think, yeah, it was it was impossible for our industry, I think, to, you know, we've done, we've all done well to survive. And, you know, the, you know, the impact of COVID will, I think, stretch for a long time in aviation. You know, we're out of it and we're, you know, in a positive mood. Financially, we've still got a lot long way to go. But airports and airlines have still got to make things work for them, um, which, you know, in, in the major airports is good. But yeah, it was, it was an awful time for for everybody. And, you know, you know we did a lot of things right to get ready but a lot of it was down to to the people and I, and I don't say that lightly you know our guys did things that couldn't have happened in other airports they were willing to you know look after the business through their own you know sacrifices and I don't think we'd be where we are now if they weren't willing to do that and I think that comes down to one how the business treats people but how the people treat the business so you know it was awful there's time. some genuine affection for the, for, from the staff to the airport. You know, the people yeah, I know at the, of course the airport is, yeah. absolutely love the it, place, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they're proud of it. And look, we don't get everything right all the time. It's business, right? But, you know, what sings loud in Liverpool is people want the airport to be a success and the people who work there. You know, we've, unfortunately, a lot of people have moved on. People still want to come and work for us, so we must be doing something right. But yeah, that, that period, which ended up being two years really, was... was it's impossible. And were you surprised, and I certainly was, at the lack of attention and support from government? Because, you know, a lot of other sectors out there who did get significant support. Yeah. And I look at aviation, I think, look, this is one of the main drivers of our economy. You know, this is the connection to the globe. And yet, you know, I was on calls, and I'm sure you were, with transport ministers and with government officials. And we obviously, we work with you, we work in Manchester, we do a little bit with Leeds. So we were raising aviation as an issue. It was like, oh, well, you know, they'll just have to crack on. It was bizarre, wasn't it? It, it, it For me, it was probably the biggest, well, obviously I work in it, is the, the biggest mistake they made because I think it was, you know, airports and airlines, we were shut, you know, we're, we're, it's a costly business to run even if you close, I mean, our break even is probably three and a half million passengers. We did half a million the first year. So you can do the maths. And I'll be honest, you know, the, the first phases of the pandemic, the calls with government were quite positive. But I think nobody really, and you were talking to DFT about, well, what support packages are going to be available. Like you said, industries were supported. And you know, I get they couldn't support everybody as much as they wanted to, but we pretty much got nothing at, at the start. We were promised a lot, and that's probably for me the biggest disappointment. I, I and my team took the view of you can't sit and wait, so we did things to protect Liverpool Airport. And if the government support came, which it didn't, happy days. But I, I'm sure a lot of people, because of what we were told, were just waiting, um, and we made some 
big big calls in, internally to to protect the business. But yeah, look, I think we're an island, right? So you need air, you need air travel. This <laughs> thing, and we shouldn't be shy from saying, you know, air travel is a vital part of the UK economy. We were, I think, we were let let down, and it was kind of like. Well, you're a private entity, just deal with it. And we, we used furlough, right? Furlough was for everybody. Yeah. It wasn't, it didn't work brilliantly for aviation. Yeah. We had to manage it through our goodwill of our people. It, it, the first set of, I mean, forget the first phase of furlough was so restrictive. You had to be in work for four weeks. And then it was like, we got shift works. You, you can't be in fire and air traffic every other day. It didn't work like that. But we tried to make it work. And then when it became a bit more flexible, Again, it wasn't designed to help aviation at all. It didn't help the airlines. You know, you, your pilots need training. They're either in or they're out. So we had people coming in and doing two hours, then going on furlough and then coming in the next day. That is only down to people. It's not down to the structure and the process. That that was that. So the di- furlough we used, government support, but we made it work for us rather than the other way around. And then we had some grant support, which didn't touch the sides, if honest. There was just no strategy in place for aviation, which I, I thought was was criminal, to be honest. I mean, I think they got a lot of things wrong during the pandemic, but you look at it and you say, well, it's a crisis that nobody could have saw coming, really, and therefore there were inevitably going to be mistakes made. But I just think it was such an obvious miss. You know, as I say, one of the biggest and most important industry sectors in the country just allowed to, oh, well, crack on that being said all of those challenges remember me you and, and robin robin tudor who i always joke's been at the airport for 99 years sorry robin um uh, you know great guy uh we've worked with, with with robin for for a long time as well and me you and him sat up in the uh the cabin there and looking across the airport bloody tumbleweed and you know i was struck by how upbeat you two were despite all of the shit that was going on around you and i thought wow you know that's that's the sort of motivational lead you want in place in this situation because you could have thrown the towel in you could have said oh well you know it's just not going to happen but even then not knowing what the final outcome was going to be from the pandemic you guys were planning for the future and of course frustratingly for you and I think, you know, I was privileged to be one of the few people who knew the negotiations with Lufthansa had taken place. And then obviously that had hit. So that must have been fucking hell, you know, we're so close to getting such a an elite airline into the city. And then the pandemic hit. Yeah, look, I think, you know, that that's it's a, it's a good example. Well, you know, when we were in the eye of the storm, uh, again, I've got a great team of people who know the business and they care. And that, that's number one priority, right? And we try to do the best we could for people. That, some people will think we didn't, but I'll be honest, every decision we made, I made was about people. Obviously I have to try and provide value and shareholder, you know, cash constraints, but ultimately we're an airport, you know, and I heard it, I think I come back, back to the Lufthansa bit now. I heard a really interesting thing. So I was at an aviation conference and some guy said to, Chief Operating Officer of Ryanair, you guys were brilliant in the pandemic. You did things so different to everybody else. Well done. How did you do it? And he went, I don't understand what you mean because we're an airline. We fly people around. We did. We just did what was right. We wanted to be an airline when we finished, so we didn't do anything crazy. So he was like, and I was like, actually, that's what we did. <clears throat> we knew at some point 
oh, I didn't think think two years. We'd need to get ready and go. And while we did lose people and we lost some great people in, in different phases of, of the pandemic, we were, we're ready. And I think there was a point where you're like, well, there's nothing else we can do. I mean, there was times when probably the time you came across that month, I think we had a thousand passengers through the airport. I mean, we had 440,000 in July. So there's a decent difference in it. But you kind of just got into this mentality of like, well, you know, it's going to, it's going to stop at some point, you know, are are we ready and can we make decisions? And, and, and we had a lot of irons in the fire before the pandemic, like Lufthansa. I mean, they came June, 2018 and we were close in summer 19. And then I think we probably would have got it in summer 20, but the pandemic hit and it didn't happen. And, and and probably that, thankfully because if it come in the pandemic it might never have come back. You know, it, it we we launched that even even the launch was crazy. We launched that December fifth or something, and on December the fourth, the Omicron variant came out, and I was like, oh, not again. And and in an industry, I think we was like, oh, because for us, people still could fly, but you had to have tests. You had to pay hundred quid when you landed. You had to have a whatever. You had to have vaccines and. It was difficult to travel, and you're like, if they, if they introduce more restrictions, then the next phase, Easter next year, is going to be awful. But but they launched it and they kept going, and, and when we sat in you know, in the cabin suite and when you know, they launched it, you're like, well, this is a great sign for their trust in the industry, but their faith in us as an airport and us as a city and a region, and, and that gives you the boost you need, you know, and I think. From that day, we just went a little bit of a gamble, right? April, Easter, it's a great time of the year. Flights are coming back. Didn't know if they'd be cancelled. Didn't know if you'd have to test 20 times to get away. But we're like, let's just be ready. So we recruit. We didn't have to recruit thousands. We recruited a few hundred across the business partners on the hope, and it was in December, that April would be somewhat normal and you know, those decisions were made with the right intention, but actually have meant last year, this year, and the future is going to be much stronger. We didn't change the business model once. I'll be honest, we adapted, you know, adapt, but we didn't go just rip that up and start again. So we were ready to go. Um, so, yeah, look, it was, there were some really tough times for everybody in, in that period, you know, and we had, you know, there was people, you know, Robin, for example, you know, didn't see him for three months because he was on furlough, you know, and he's, he's been around the airport, like you said, for, since it opened, but um, so you, you, but you always knew that people were there and they could come back and, and the operation was ready to go. Um, but yeah, it was yeah things like Lufthansa was a huge boost for us. I'd be it was a massive confidence booster, I think, for for not just the airport, but I think for the city and the visitor economy. And as I say, I, I think the integration between the airports and the wider visitor economy in the city now is is much stronger since. Uh, you came in as chief executive, and then just the you know to end the the conversation on a real high note, we've now got the Jet Two deal as well, which is just incredible. Yeah, this this is the game changer for Liverpool. You know, we, we've got great partnerships with EasyJet and Ryanair. Been there twenty plus years, and and they're great, and they do a great job. And hopefully, they can they're in growth mode this year. Let's hope they're in growth mode next year and the year after. But getting Jet Twos was something the airport and the people, the leisure makers of Liverpool and the surrounding region have wanted for 15 years. And you will never get me 
having a go at Manchester Airport because we exist together and then that's fine and they do things we can't and we do things they can't. That's just life. But for us, Jet2 and Liverpool is going to work and it's going to be brilliant because because of what we offer. You know, I, I was with the guys on Tuesday night on the balcony in the Liver building doing a trade launch. You know, 60 independent travel agents, Steve Heapy up there, me, you know, talking about Liverpool. The atmosphere was amazing. You know, they're like, I can't wait. All of our customers want it. So it's going to be brilliant. So next year we'll have four Jet2 aircraft in Liverpool. You know, it's taken the airport 15 years probably to get that over the line. Even the last negotiation took a year. Um, but it's a big investment for them. But it's it's going to be, you know, a game changer for us. It's it's great. You know, we you can still go on holiday with our other airlines, which is great, but you've now got a choice. You don't want to go to Manchester you don't have to go, right? And, and that's good for us. But yeah, like we want to we want to grow sustainably with all of them. And that's the mentality. But the, the most important thing, the one question I got asked, well, I got asked a few questions, but the main question I get asked now is, can the airport do what it does now with Jet2 on top of what you've got? And the answer is quite simple. One, I think next year will be bigger than we've ever been from a passenger number point of view. But all we're about and all the things we're doing and investing in and discussing resources, infrastructure, is about making sure Liverpool stays like Liverpool. Security queues, 10 minutes, getting off, getting your bags and getting in your car in 10, 15 minutes, you know, having a nice experience, you know, enjoying the airport. We will be doing that no matter how big we get. Sometimes it might be a little bit slow to get there, but that's the mentality. We can't become, you know, can't become a small Manchester. In simple terms, we have to deliver the customer experience that people expect at Liverpool. That's why they choose us. So, yeah, look, it's going to be exciting next year. It's going to be great. You know, it's another huge boost for for us as an airport coming out of the pandemic, for the people who work there, but for the city region as well. I think, you know, they don't mess around Jet 2. There'll be jobs. You know, they'll have a red team there. You know, that part of the airport will look red. Um, they're going to, you know, they come and do things in a big way. Like I said, 60 travel agents. We've got a big party in a couple of weeks. It's, it's a big buzz, isn't it, going around? So that's great news. No, brilliant. Congratulations on that one. And John, thanks for coming into the Downtown Den. Hope you've enjoyed the I've chat. Done, yeah. Thank you very much, Frank. Good Great to see stuff. You. And that's John Irving, Chief Executive of Liverpool, John Lennon Airport. Fascinating conversation. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And we'll be back next week with another leader in the Leaders Series in the Downtown Den podcast. Thanks for joining us. See you again soon.